1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Locked on Vikings. I'm your host, your pal, and the kid you copied off in math class. My name is Luke Braun. You can find me on Twitter at Luke Braun NFL. You can find the show on Twitter at Locked On Vikings. This show is available anywhere you find your favorite podcasts, like Spotify, Himalaya, Google Podcasts, whatever you want. Or if you don't like any of those services, you just don't want to be scrolling through clunky apps on your phone, you can always just ask your smart device, like Siri, Alexa, Google Home, Play Podcast, Locked. On Vikings. And don't forget to check us out on Google News as well. Before we get into breaking down some of the ins and outs of the Chargers game, a little bit of news. Dalvin Cook's injury was to his shoulder. It was a different shoulder injury than the sprained AC joint or likely sprained AC joint that he's been nursing since the Denver game. Mike Zimmer expressed optimism in his press conference that Dalvin Cook would be able to play through that shoulder injury as well. However, NFL insider Adam Schefter expressed that we might not see Dalvin Cook for the rest of the regular season. As with all things, the practice reports later this week should shed a lot more light on the situation. After this weekend and Monday Night Football, the Vikings still sit in the sixth seed in the NFC, however with much more comfort since the Rams lost to the Cowboys. There are currently four teams ahead of the Vikings at 11-3. Of those four, the Vikings, of course, do not have head-to-head tiebreakers against the Packers or Seahawks. However, they could get tiebreakers against the Saints or 49ers should the seeding come down to it. Moving on to the actual analysis of the game, I want to start with Joey Bosa, who, of course, had a really quiet day. He only had three pressures on the day. That's his third worst Uh, Pass rushing game on the season. Tied for third worst. This is third worst pass rushing grade of the season per PFF. And all of that passes the smell test, right? It was a fairly quiet outing for the superstar defensive end. So I wanted to look into, like, how the Vikings did that, and I've kind of mentioned some of it already, but there are some things that you can do to neutralize a defensive end that are fairly typical. You can chip them or have a a running back or a tight end kind of bump them in the shoulder on the way uh, to their route, or just block them entirely in a double team. There was actually a play that ended up in a, I believe it was a third down conversion, it might have been a first and 15 conversion, where they blocked Joey Bosa with Kyle Rudolph and Irv Smith, two tight ends. And that's a double team, even though neither of those guys stands a chance against Bosa on their own, a double team actually was able to get the job done. However, there was probably a missed holding call on it. In addition to all of that, there are just some play designs that are designed to get around a specific player. Sometimes you have to, especially if you're dealing with an uneven box or more defenders in the box than you have blockers for a run play, you have to do something with your scheme to kind of neutralize one of those people. This is uh, the trap play is the like most common example of this where you lure a defensive tackle, usually a three technique upfield by having the guard play a certain technique and kind of almost lose. On purpose to a specific side, and you lure them upfield, and then you have the run game go right past them uh, into a different gap, and then suddenly that defensive tackle has kind of run themselves out of the play, and the guard is still available to block somebody else. There's a lot more creative ways to use this kinds of logic. Uh, trap plays are a common thing that every team uses, but for example, the Vikings used a lot of wide receiver runs to do this, where they would have, say, Adam Thielen, or I think they, they handed one to B.C. Johnson. They had Diggs do one where, you know, if you have like a jet sweep or end around motion, where the wide receiver is coming across the formation, they will be going at uh, horizontally at too fast of a clip for even the most disruptive defensive ends to get upfield and make a stop there so you can kind of run the guy right past him and then you don't have to block him and that means that all of your offensive linemen are available to do other stuff and you just took their best player out of the play. And I think unsurprisingly, whenever the Vikings deployed a play that has that kind of thing in its design that's, you know, like meant to kind of neutralize one player regardless of how good they are and just kind of automatically take them out of the equation and then you're, you know, 10 on 10 from there or 11 on 10 from there as it were, it was pretty much always targeting Joey Bosa and that makes a lot of sense, right? He's probably the most disruptive player on that defense even after you account for all that secondary. So that doesn't like offer too much surprise that's the kind of thing you would expect the Vikings to do going into a game against a guy like Joey Bosa but what I think is really cool is especially on third down situations third down like throwing situations and the Vikings had a couple of like third and seven third and eleven and they managed to convert more of them than you would expect although the Chargers were also converting them on the other side they actually left their tackles one-on-one with Bosa Quite a few times and with pretty good results. This is actually a really good moment for Riley Reef and Brian O'Neill. Uh, Joey Bosa rushed from both sides plenty. I think he rushed from one side 19 times and the other side 18 times. So it's not like the Chargers were like picking on one tackle or another. And teams have been doing that throughout the year. I think they do generally scout the Vikings and say, "Okay, Riley Reef and Brian o'neill are about the same." And so that should tell you that, you know, something about their performance, right? That both uh that all, all of the Vikings' opponents are seeing them as kind of equals and not really trying to pick on one or the other, Uh, and of course the Chargers do this with Joey Bosa, and so you kind of have to test both Reef and O'Neal, and they both hold up to this test really well, and the other guy gets Melvin Ingram on the other side, and the Chargers actually move Melvin Ingram around quite a bit it would kind of be like when the Vikings would have Brian Robison rush from a standing up position or what they do on third downs with Weatherly and Odenabo, Uh But if they did that with, like, Daniel Hunter, it's it's a very interesting way for the Chargers to play their pass rush, especially on third downs. So you actually had moments where Melvin Ingram went up against, like, Pat Elfline one-on-one or Josh Klein one-on-one, uh, and then a lot of times where he ended up on a tackle And on the other side, the other tackle gets Joey Bosa. But I I was really impressed watching Reef and O'Neal win against a superstar like Joey Bosa all the time. And I think ultimately, you know, the schematic stuff is really cool and interesting to break down. And I think that has to be part of the story. But I think the lead of the story is that, yeah, they were left one-on-one in key situations with their best Chargers player and they won. And I think that has a huge uh, amount to do with the fact that the Vikings were able to move the ball when asked. They weren't wholly successful. Bosa still did get three pressures, and of course the Vikings did have some issues uh, cashing in in the red zone, at least in the first half. They got a lot better at it in the second half, and of course they got a bajillion opportunities because the Chargers kept turning the ball over and giving, giving them short fields but neutralizing Bosa kind of has to be an effort of everybody on the team. You have to do some plays schematically, you have to but you can't scheme around him every play that just cripples your offense too much, so sometimes you just have to leave your guys on an island with the superstar and hope that they can hold up and when they do, you end up with everybody going, oh my god, where did Joey Bosa go? I completely forgot about him and by the way the Vikings are up 39-10. to 10. Oh, and hey guys, uh, the year is almost up. If you are a Spotify listener, you can use Spotify Wrapped to show us your top locked on podcasts for the year. So take a screen Shot of it and tag us at Locked On Live, and then tag me at Luke Braun NFL and/or the show at Locked On Vikings on Twitter, and we will share and retweet.
0: Hi, this is David Locke, the CEO of the Locked On Podcast Network. In this crazy, unprecedented, and unnerving time, I know we're all living our lives a little differently. I thought we had some of our sponsors over the time that might be able to help you out. So we've reached out to them to get you specific offers. Postmates is giving our listeners $100 of free delivery credit for their first seven days. Start your free deliveries, download the Postmates app, and use the promo code MBA. Anxiety, stress, need something to calm yourself down,
1: All right, so for the rest of the show, I'm probably going to spend most of it uh, breaking down some of the turnovers, especially the interceptions, and kind of diving a little bit deeper into those key moments. Uh, But first, I just want to lay out a couple of other stats that I found interesting. Uh, Kirk Cousins was only under pressure on seven dropbacks on Sunday, and that is a really incredible rate. That's 28%, which keeps them on that rolling average. I mentioned last week on the show that uh, Cousins led the league in the most clean dropbacks He's been kept the most clean in the entire NFL uh, for the last four weeks. Now, I think you can add that up to five weeks, and that is still the case, Monday night notwithstanding a couple of interesting coverage stats. Mackenzie Alexander had a really poor game in this one. He was targeted six times. He allowed four of them to be caught, and all four of them were first downs, and you probably would remember all of them if I pointed them out. There was one uh, near the beginning. It was a third and long that they ended up converting right behind Mackenzie Alexander where he really, really struggled to pick up his man out of a stacked alignment. So a stacked alignment, you probably see it all the time. Uh, The Vikings do it sometimes. They'll line up in a bunch where there's three people all bunched up, and Uh, then one motions across the formation and suddenly there's kind of one guy standing in front of another guy and that's how the wide receivers line up. That can be kind of difficult for cornerbacks uh, and safeties and stuff to communicate because a lot of the time, you don't know which guy is going to run which route. If you have, you know, a classic where line alignment where, like, one wide receiver is on the outside and one is in the slot, corners see that a lot more often, and they usually know what kind of route concepts come out of that and what teams tend to run, and they've studied the film and they know who's going to run what. So they kind of know what to expect. Out of that stack, it's really difficult to know who is going to run what concept because they're basically running from the exact same spot on the field so there's not like an advantage to having like one guy take the in route and one taking the out breaking route or you know whatever the route concept happens to be plus they're just like physically one is in front of the other so it's difficult to read technique and read that play and then you also have to communicate with whoever the other guy is that's on the other wide receiver for who is taking who it can be really easy to run into each other that you know teams do a lot of like rub concepts out of that type of alignment and Mackenzie Alexander failed really, really hard at figuring out who his man was. He ends up, he was supposed to take the in-breaking in route. I believe it was a high-low stretch with a, a go route, or I think it was maybe like a little bit of a wheel, and uh, uh, an in-breaking route, like a deep in. Sort of like a Mills concept, something the Vikings do quite a bit. And on this... Uh, route Mackenzie Alexander was responsible for the in route but he went with the post uh, thinking that was supposed to be his assignment and he ended up getting completely turned around and lost downfield and there was a lot of separation behind him and Rivers was able to easily convert a third and long and that's just the kind of mistake you can't happen especially in December you had a lot of time to get this down and that's the kind of thing that'll kill you in a playoff game Uh, and I think that kind of defined his whole day so he had a really rough day Mike Hughes also had a really interesting and, in my opinion, kind of difficult to evaluate day because, of course, he had this really great interception. We're going to talk about it more later, but but he also gave up the touchdown. He only gave up five of his nine targets, but four of those went for first down. So when he lost, it really mattered. So he was in good coverage a lot, but with those kind of reactive positions, like, I, I think it's helpful sometimes to to divide positions between, like, what's proactive, that's wide receivers, running backs, quarterbacks, people who are responsible for creating, and reactive, that's corners and offensive line and people who are responsible for preventing something from happening. And when you're in one of those reactive positions, you kind of tend to be defined by your failures more than your successes. For offensive line and for corners, you know, your performance is defined by its consistency. And so for that, I don't think I can praise Mike Hughes' day too much, but I can definitely praise individual plays and his kind of uh his development throughout the course of the game so let's talk about some of these turnovers you had of course four fumbles and three interceptions there were actually five fumbles but the chargers ended up recovering one or kind of knocking it out of bounds which means that they retained possession and since we're on the topic why not let's start with that mike hughes one even though it's out of order uh, that was a pretty standard coverage actually it was just cover two a I, I, I think it was just a straight up cover two shell with uh, my Hughes kind of playing underneath that go route. And when you have a go route on the sideline against cover two, that can actually be a pretty explosive play. The Vikings actually take that throw quite a bit. Kirk Cousins kind of likes that throw. Uh, You may have heard it described as like the turkey hole throw, where you throw behind the corner, but to the outside of the safety, and it's kind of that hole between the two before the safety can, and the corner can converge on the wide receiver. And you often get that throw against cover two because the uh, the cornerback who's playing underneath that go route is passing it off to the safety. So you kind of get this moment where the corner has given it up, but the safety hasn't picked it up yet. And if you can fit it right in there, then you can get uh, you know, a really big play. Again, Kirk, Cousins, and Diggs do this all the time against these coverages. Kirk loves this throw. And that's the thing that uh, Philip Rivers was trying to get on that particular throw. And on that drive, if you remember the sequencing of it, Mike Hughes had given up like three receptions. And Keenan Allen and Mike Williams were really getting the better of him. So I definitely understood the idea of Rivers basically trying to test Mike Hughes. He hadn't won a contested catch all day, so just throw it up and, and you know, just don't miss long so that the safety can pick you off. What ends up happening is that he way, way underthrows it, he puts way too much air under it, and Mike Hughes is in pretty good position. And, and this is kind of an interesting principle in coverage that makes coverage difficult to evaluate, is, is that... You know, your job as a cornerback or a safety isn't necessarily to clamp down and make it impossible to catch a guy. Sometimes you can't do that, right? Sometimes they run a good route or the scheme is such that you you can't always make it so that there is zero throwing window. You just have to make the throwing window as, as small as possible, and if you keep giving quarterbacks th- small throwing windows, then just kind of by the by definition, it's they're going to hit fewer of them, and eventually they'll throw you something that maybe you can even make a play on. And I think this falls in that category, where yes, the throw was bad, but the coverage was unforgiving and and if you have unforgiving coverage, eventually bad throws will come your way and you'll be able to cash in on them. And I think that's what happened with Mike Hughes here. So I do think he earned that in that interception, even though the throw was like horrendously underthrown, just by virtue of being in position to take advantage of that. Like I mentioned in yesterday's show kind of briefly, but let's go a little deeper into it. The other two interceptions were kind of the same play, like the same, like in spirit moment were happening for both Anthony Harris and Harrison Smith, just different guys making it. So the Harrison Smith one, what I find most interesting on that play is I think Philip Rivers really, really wanted, he had a pre-snap uh, eye on Keenan Allen who was lined up in the slot against Holton Hill and had a wheel route dialed up with like a switch switch concept in their kind of like a pick concept and so all of those fancy words what they mean is that Keenan Allen, and I want to say it was Mike Williams, uh, the other wide receiver who was lined up outside, were going to kind of cross paths in the beginning of their route. That's the switch part of it. And then Keenan Allen was going to run a wheel route up the sideline, hoping that there was separation created by all the traffic that was going to happen when they crossed paths. So Holton Hill actually sifts through this really well, and he ends up getting uh, stride for stride with Keenan Allen up the sideline. And not to mention, Harrison Smith's kind of cheating over that way, and that route is completely unavailable to Rivers. So then he actually has to work over to the other side, where I believe it was another kind of Mills concept. There was a dig and a post going on uh, from outside in there. So there was uh, the outside receiver running the dig, the inside a slot receiver running a post route, and there was Anthony Harris, who was kind of responsible for reading both of those, and he... Kind of played it a little bit too safe and he backed off a little bit too much. There was room underneath. But because Philip Rivers took so long to get over to that side, the post route had worked its way all the way over to the other side, uh, to the other hash mark, and then in danger of Harrison Smith. So there was a throwing window there, but it was really, really tight, and Rivers really had to fire that in. Uh, But there was actually pressure. Anthony Barr got a decent push up the middle on on a blitz, and that took a lot of the space away from... Philip Rivers, so he couldn't step into that throw the way that he's supposed to, and so it just hung up in the air forever, and Harrison Smith had plenty of time to work his way o- back over from, you know, cheating toward that Keenan Allen route over to the middle of the field to where it was actually thrown, and then he could go pick it off. And something really similar happened on the, air- the Anthony Harris interception. That was a post route that was designed to attack split safeties, which was the look that the Vikings were in. So the Chargers actually had a play play. play call design that countered the Vikings coverage. The Vikings were in cover four. The Chargers only did did only have three deep routes, but one of those deep routes was designed to lure Anthony Harris over toward the sideline. And then you were going to run a post, uh, right to the spot that he was vacating. And part of that play call is Philip Rivers looking off the safety. You might hear people talk about that all the time. And all that means is you kind of stare down one route and the safety that's watching where you're looking is going to go try to jump that route. And at the last second you look away and you throw the ball to, exactly where that safety left Anthony Harris however and part of this is Chris Boyd who was in the game by this point uh, actually being in really good position he was playing underneath the corner route that was supposed to lure Anthony Harris out of position and he was in good enough position where Anthony Harris could kind of actually survey the field and realize okay there's three deep routes it's cover four and I'm the fourth guy in the odd man out which means I can kind of roam free and do whatever I want And so instead of uh, cheating all the way toward that corner route, which was on his side of the field, but Chris Boyd had pretty well handled, he was able to kind of leave himself in some position to help out over the middle of the field where the throw was, again, like a really bad floater. And this is another one that kind of was aided by a not very good throw from Phillip Rivers, but that wouldn't have been available to you in the first place if you didn't play some degree of well. And so Anthony Harris was there for it to be intercepted. And I actually remember sitting in the stands and the second that one was let go, I was actually tracking it in the air. I wasn't looking at the coverage at all, but I was like, oh my god, that's totally an interception. Just the way that it was floating up there, you could tell somebody was going to be able to make a play on that and jump it so that you didn't even have a contested catch opportunity for the Vikings to lose, something they had been pretty bad at for the entire game. So that's three of the turnovers, but there are seven to go over. The thing is three of those fumbles were really, really similar plays. And the reason that they were forced, and actually the fourth one too, the one that the Vikings didn't recover, all came from the same technique. And you're supposed to tackle in a certain way. Daniel Hunter was actually asked about this after the game, and he kind of explained it pretty in a pretty cool way. And essentially, you know, when you tackle, you're taught to wrap up around the waist. But that kind of leaves you a lot of different options for where to put your arms, high or low or, you know, around this part or around that part. And what they're being taught is, you know, if you are tackling them at an angle, of course, it's different if you're coming from the front or coming from the side or coming from behind, you know, you want to find a way to get your hand on the ball so that when you wrap up, you're not just wrapping up anywhere, you're wrapping up in a motivated spot. So you can maybe get a hand on the ball. Uh, The first fumble the one that happened in the first quarter may have actually been sprung also by Mike Hughes, who kind of uh, got a shoulder on the ball and may have loosened it up for then, I believe it was Daniil Hunter to finish off the fumble, and Harrison Smith recovered that one. There was the fumble caused by Shamar Steffen. That one was, I believe, the one at the beginning of the first half, or the second half. That was uh, Shamar Steffen just doing all of that on his own and that was just having like a really good punch at the ball and that's a luxury that you have when when your teammates are all swarming around you so if your attempt to strip the ball goes poorly and you end up missing the tackle there's like three other guys there to clean it up and that's that kind of awareness that you have to have as a veteran player and you can just kind of like punch at the ball the best you can and see if you can't pop it out lo and behold he does that was the one daniel hunter recovered and of course there was the strip sack That Ifadio Denebo recovered for a touchdown, which had that same kind of technique where instead of just getting the quarterback down however, he used his arms to actually get a shot at the ball as well as wrapping up. And that's just, you know, a sound tackling technique after sound technique got you to put the right tackle directly into the turf. So all that leaves is the the final fumble of the game. I believe it was the latest one, which was a throw to Hunter Henry and Eric Kendricks is credited with a forced fumble. This one was a little weird. I don't think it should have been a fumble. I think it was an incomplete pass because I, I don't think he had possession of the ball for very long at all, or he didn't seem to really secure it and then, like, become a runner. You know, I, I feel fairly... Familiar with the transition between becoming, you know, a receiver and becoming a, a runner, and I don't think that Hunter Henry had done that. However, regardless of if, if it's a fumble or a pass breakup, it's a good play by Eric Kendricks to get his hand on the ball and you know knock it out of the Chargers players' hands. He was in really nice tight coverage on that play. It was just a little out route, and Eric Kendricks was all over it. He gets a hand on it, he disrupts the play, and Trey Waynes ends up recovering it and almost returning it for a second defensive touchdown. So after going over all of those, really the point of the exercise that I wanted to make was, you know, how many of these turnovers actually display skills that are useful, that kind of say, okay, yes, the Vikings are good and earned these, versus some of these that are the Chargers just not being very good at this. And I think like one turnover I can kind of throw out is that last one just because I think if that exact same play happened again, I don't know if another officiating group calls it a fumble, though I can still praise it as a good play because at worst that's an incomplete pass, right? And then Kendricks is getting praised for a pass breakup. In terms of the interceptions, I kind of give the Vikings at least partial credit for all three. Even the one uh, to Mike Hughes that was probably the worst throw of all three of those. Again, Mike Hughes was in good enough position actually did a really good job of passing that off to the safety to make it so that that throw had to be really really good I think the same thing applies to the Harrison Smith interception if the throw had to be very very good and then you got an interception because it wasn't up to the very high standard you created then you deserve credit for making the standard as high as it was And then I just want to kind of reiterate a point about the fumbles that I made on yesterday's show. You know, we can make a lot of noise about fumble luck, and there is some degree of that that is luck. In fact, I think most of fumble recovery is rooted in luck. However, forcing five fumbles is not luck, and chances are you would actually have to be really unlucky to force five fumbles and recover none of them, although that does sound like a supremely Vikings thing to happen. Maybe that'll happen in a playoff game. But that tackling technique and that ability to punch the ball out and the awareness to do it and to know when to do it, when you have to just make the safe tackle and when you can afford to go for that strip, all of that stuff points to a team that went into LA really, really well coached. And there are other schematic things and kind of uh, strategic decisions that I've been praising throughout this show and the last one. And I think you know, as much as this game feels like, felt like when we were watching it, that, you know, the Chargers were definitely playing better than the scoreboard would indicate, and I think the game was absolutely closer in spirit than the scoreboard would indicate, you know, forcing those seven turnovers was, of course, the thing that defined the game and turned it from an even affair to a dominant one, and all of those plays count among the samples, so I I feel pretty comfortable giving the Vikings, like, a lot of credit for this win probably not for a blowout win but I don't I think you'd have to do a lot of work and you'd probably have to make some unreasonable concessions to turn this into a game the Vikings would have lost right and so they ascend to a pretty legitimate 10 and 4 and they go into the last couple of weeks of the season with still at least a shot at the division although it's really difficult when there's an 11 and 3 team in the division with you and a very likely ticket punched to the playoffs at least, unless this uh, unless they collapse pretty hard. And so on that note, I'm going to wrap it up for today's episode of Locked On Vikings. I will see you all tomorrow for a Crossover Wednesday. We're going to talk to Peter Bukowski. We're going to break down the Packers again. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at Luke Braun NFL. The show's on Twitter at Locked On Vikings. This show is available anywhere you find your favorite shows, or you can just ask your smart device to play podcast Locked On Vikings. I will see you all tomorrow, and as always. Skull.
0: Hey, Locked Hey, Minnesota listeners. This is Tony Abbott here to tell you about the brand new Lockdown Wild podcast, where my co-host Joe Bully and I break down the Minnesota Wild every single day. How can you listen? Just search for Lockdown Wild in your favorite podcast app and subscribe to bring Lockdown Wild to your device every day.